Welcome to the third season of That's So Second Millennium, the Catholic science podcast where we explore the fascinating borderlands between science and theology through realms of philosophy, human experience, and more. Welcome back to That's So Second Millennium, episode 132. This is a solo episode coming to you from Wyoming Catholic College, discussing the history of mathematical physics, discussing the methods uh, that have evolved over time, um, and the the external impulses that governed uh, the formation of those methods, and their use um, from the time of the Greeks all the way out to the time of Galileo in the early 17th century. This is the sort of stuff that uh, made me really enthusiastic to take this job, and uh, I'm enjoying the chance to share it with you. So, without further ado, here's the history of mathematical physics from about the middle of the, about 500 BC to about 1640. Welcome back to that so second millennium. This is uh, Paul coming to you from the offices of Wyoming Catholic College. And my voice is probably a little different today because I am adjusting to the fact <laughs> that I have uh, had, uh, I've gotten hearing aids. And so my voice sounds very loud and strange to myself right now, echoing off the walls of this office. Hopefully it's not, uh, not noticeable to all of you. Um, it's very noticeable to me. <laughs> and it's very strange. <laughs> uh, today, um, I'm going to need to do a solo episode today. Um, given scheduling constraints on myself as well as Bill more than anything else. Um, we have some ideas for people we'd like to interview um, coming up, um, but we haven't been able to bring those to fruition just yet. So today, um, actually inspired by the class that I'm teaching here on uh, mathematical methods, actually we call it uh, deductive methods in science, here at Wyoming Catholic College. Um, and all students take it because all students take every class here. Um, that's, that's the nature of the curriculum here. Um, we give them a single degree in humanities and uh, the liberal arts and uh, turn them loose upon the world. Um, we try to teach them things that are worth knowing in themselves. Um, and that's, uh, in my case, that's looking into, peering into, the, within the walls, underneath the floors, even uh, the structure of the ceiling, so to speak, of this cathedral of a universe that we inhabit, and to try to give them an appreciation for that. And it's difficult. It's, it's very difficult. It's going to be a lot to, uh, to adapt to in terms of uh, students with a very wide, very wide range of backgrounds because more than half of them have been homeschooled. And so there's uh, the delightful, riotous uh, mixture of different, uh, you know, that's, that's the whole point of homeschooling is that the parents themselves can choose what their students get to learn. And they make different choices. People are inconvenient like that. I think Hilaire Bellick would, uh, with tongue-in-cheek, make that observation. Um, modern uh, modern bureaucrats are very dissatisfied with the choices that we individually make um, because they're just not tidy. They're just not tidy. Um, and I am not going to make that complaint. I'm just going to observe that I have to do what I can uh, to try to uh, yeah to try to, to try to address all of them. Um, so the, uh, the idea of mathematical physics, of course, we're going to go back to the Greeks and the figure of Pythagoras. Ironically, we recall in uh, you know in the modern world because of Pythagoras' theorem that's you know the touchstone we remember that strange name of the strange fellow 
um, from the middle of the first century, or the, I'm sorry, the middle of the first millennium BC. Um, but in fact, um, he and his school were really taken with arithmetic and almost the sacredness of number. I'm not an expert on this. This is you know, actually uh, reaching back to readings that I did many, many years ago um, about the history of mathematics and you know, great theorems in mathematics, I believe, is the title of one of these books that I read a number of times back then. And uh, so there was a great crisis um, in, you know, at the very outset of the history of mathematics, of Western mathematics as we know it. Um, of course, there was practical mathematics. There was there was practical geometry that the Egyptians and the Babylonians, uh, the Sumerians, um, and so on would must have had, had to have had um, that we have you know about as soon, if not sooner, than we develop language for heaven's sake. But nevertheless, um, you know, obviously there was something with you know, figures like Thales and Pythagoras. Something new had happened. And China, China and India have their own uh, mathematical histories that I'm not familiar with. Someday I would love to have the chance to learn at least a little bit. But in terms of the Greeks, it starts with them in the first millennium BC. And so, early in the history, um, you know, during the period, I mean, Pythagoras has almost a cult. Um, there are people, you know, who follow Pythagoras, um, revere, revere him almost as a prophet, uh, to my knowledge. And uh, and one of his followers develops, you know the realization um, of the basic fact that of, of incommensurability and, and many of the early Pythagorean um, mathematical results depended on the belief that all distances must be commensurable which in a way means that all geometric lengths must be somehow in a certain sense arithmetical means we can find if, if everything is commensurable then that means we just need to divide the divide two different links finely enough and we will find a common what we would now call a greatest common divisor so to speak something that will go evenly into each length um, and thereby really you know translate the links into numbers I don't want to say reduce the links to numbers although perhaps that's not inappropriate in this context um, and you can't, as a matter of fact, as commonsensical as that seems, not I just go small enough, of course I can manage that. Um, but as a matter of fact, you can't do that. Um, and it's as basic as as soon as you uh, cross a square with a diagonal, the side and the diagonal of square are not commensurable. Um, so this very you know basic everyday figure contains the seed of and of course you know that's it it's simply because it's an irrational number what we would now call an irrational number um which you know it means much the same thing we can't we can't we can't uh construct a, it as a ratio out of units we can't break if we if we take the side of the square as our unit um we simply can't break that unit down and then reconstruct the diagonal by building it up again by multiplying it by a certain number and this was a crisis. This was just an absolute intellectual crisis. I even read that there was a legend that the guy who discovered it was drowned. <laughs> That's a bad... <laughs> That's a bad sign. Bad sign. So, yeah. So this, this, in a way, seems to have created a lean in Greek mathematics away from arithmetic. Here at the very outset, in the first few generations of people doing what we would call really I mean, serious mathematics... And so, from that time on, and especially crystallized in Euclid and Euclid's elements, we have this 
heavy lean toward geometry. And of course, so Euclid simply starts out with plain geometry. He does a book on that. He does a book, kind of a weird second book, where he, he discusses gnomons and lines cutting other lines. He has a third book. He has a third book about circles. Um, and so by the fifth book, he's talking about proportions, but he's doing it with these, you know, messy, well, not messy, but, you know, not very illustrative geometric figures of here's a line and here's another line, and I'm going to talk about their lengths. I'm going to talk about the, the mean proportional between them in, t- in terms like that. But it was the tool that they trusted now. They didn't trust arithmetic anymore. They felt they had to. Geometry was in some sense superior. It had quantities that, um, you know, that arithmetic couldn't touch. And so there's also, of course, at the same time, this lean toward axiomatic proofs um, and, and this desire for, you know, as, you know, absolute certainty, which, I mean, is understandable if, you know, if the Pythagoreans had been more rigorous. There was a sense that there was, there was, a, sense that there was a crisis and a whole bunch of proofs that needed to be redone. Um, and no one likes redoing work. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very, <laughs> very terrifying to have to redo large amounts of work, as anyone knows who's, you know, built something wrong and, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, covered, you know, put, it, put his studs in wrong and, you know, covered it with a wall and then realizes he's going to have to tear that beautiful new wall material out um, or at least try to rip it off with doing as little damage as possible and then try to redo it all from the beginning. Or perhaps he needs to redo the wiring within the wall, something like that. Um, to do that with a massive intellectual project is just as bad, just as nasty. So, so there's this crisis in the, and, and this um, reach toward axiomatic proofs and, and a particular style of axiomatic proofs. And so this is, in the late first millennium, the environment in which people, and by people I mean Archimedes <laughs> in particular, he was not the only one, um, but Archimedes stands out far above the crowd, in terms of someone trying to do mathematical physics. And he's doing it in this paradigm, not with our modern notation, not with our X's and Y's, and also not with the tools that we have of analytic geometry. He's doing it with, you know, now we have this modern, you know, stuffy term of synthetic geometry. But it's simply planes, you know, triangles and rectangles and circles and so forth and as much solid geometry as we can wrap our heads around, which for Archimedes was a lot, and the rest of his contemporaries not so much, because Archimedes was insanely, <laughs> insanely brilliant. Um, so, so Archimedes starts to do things. So, you know, the, the text of Archimedes we actually cover in our class is called On Floating Bodies, and that was a trip, encountering that for the first time, because I'm expecting Archimedes to, you know, to talk about floating objects in a vessel, an everyday vessel of some kind, a bucket or something. And instead, in his Proposition 2 of this little book, um, where he starts actually doing physics, there's this diagram that's a semicircle, and I immediately find out that the center O of the semicircle is the center of the Earth. What? (laughs) So he realizes, in some sense, of course, and, and I, you know, half-joking, half, less than half-jokingly with the students said, um, isn't there this, like, lie <laughs> or this or this story that this guy named Isaac Newton, disco- quote, discovered gravity? I mean, what's this, what's, this Aris- or what's this Archimedes doing? 
he's, he recognizes that the center of the earth is what things are attracted to and that the surface of any fluid is a segment of a spherical surface. The surface of any body of fluid is a piece of a sphere whose center is the center of the earth. How did he have that level of insight? I mean, it's crazy. It's just crazy. And so he starts to prove Euclidean propositions with you know, the help of a postulate about the behavior of fluid, which you know, our, our English translation of it was incredibly messy. And it you know, contains things like the piece of the fluid that is thrust more drives along the part of the fluid that is thrust the less. Um, and so there's this great uncertainty about exactly what you know, physical concepts, the, you know, the precisely defined physical terms that we now have, which in you know, force, weight, pressure, um, all of those need to be defined um, to really understand exactly what Archimedes was getting at. Um, yeah, so, so this piece, this piece of work, you know, is just, it contains incredible insight, and in a way it's also very tedious. And so then we go on, so, so the history, you know, so, um, Archimedes, uh, killed by the Romans in the middle of the second century BC. Um, and so this, this legacy continues on. And then, the, of course, the other, the other side of the physical legacy of the ancients is, is uh, Aristotle. And Aristotle's reasoning about things in a very, we call, qualitative sense. I mean, that is the rap on Aristotle, is that he will put things into categories, um, and he will think, you know, this is in this box, and then it goes over into this box. Um, and if it's being moved by this thing, it can't be moved by any other, you know, force or impulse or something at the same time, um, which is radically, radically false. Um, but seems intuitive. And, and Aristotle being the teacher of the Middle Ages, especially the High Middle Ages, um, literally, I mean, there was, there was a long period where questions like this simply didn't occupy people in the West and not that many people in Byzantium. Um, and so, you know, when, they, when people do start to haul this out, they think about things in Aristotelian terms in the early second millennium. So there's this over, you know, millennium and a half well over a millennium and a half, almost two, where this Euclidean paradigm is still current. And that goes that descends all the way down to the early 17th century. Um, and so this week we're reading Galileo. We're reading texts of Galileo. And like, um, like Pythagoras, I mentioned earlier, we know for things that you know didn't necessarily occupy his time. Um, we also know Galileo in terms of his astronomical work, and arguably he's more influential in terms of his analysis of motion and accelerated motion um, and things like that. But Galileo in the 1630s, you know, st you know starting early in his life, around the turn of the century, um, but on into the 1630s, is still working in this Euclidean paradigm of mathematical physics. He's still drawing these really tedious diagrams. And to be perfectly honest, some of his proofs are kind of shaky. Um, yeah, yeah, Galileo is a fascinating figure. Um, and it's, it's, it's a privilege to be here and to be reading some of these primary sources and get to know things that I've, you know, read in secondary sources. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a commonplace in the philosophy of science, in the history of science, to comment that Galileo didn't 
have the evidence to back up his assertions about the heliocentric um, cosmos, the heliocentric solar system. It was a bold idea. He sashayed out there, um, and he turned out to be right about that one. He turned out to be wrong about other things, smaller things, to be sure. Um, most infamously, in, in what I've read, he was really wrong about what causes Earth's tides. Um, yeah, that, that took Newton um, to start to identify what that really was. But, but Galileo had these bold ideas, and, and there are people, and that's just fundamental to the history of science, is that we have these, it just, it just generally does not happen in the same person to have these big, bold, you know, paradigm-overturning ideas and also the ability to, to, to pin them down, to, to really um, establish them, to really get them um, well-founded. And I hope in a, a future episode to talk about that in terms of what happened in mathematics in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. Um, yeah, and, and so, so watching Galileo, though, um, so with his, many of his, again, his results about accelerated motion in the, in the works that we're reading today, which are a, a, this funny dialogue we're reading uh, this week, uh, some pieces from the third and fourth day of a certain dialogue that was uh, written late in his life, summarizing uh, results from his earlier books, but had been gotten themselves on the index, partly because Galileo uh, was, you know, really good at insulting people, getting people irritated. And, yeah, so, uh, then, you know, but you look at this, you know, methodology, and he, he's wading through some of his proofs are a little shaky, but most of them are, what they all are is kind of tedious. Um, looking at, you know, looking at these diagrams and reasoning about proportions between this line that represents time and this line that represents space. Um, and he had the need also to wade through a whole bunch of cases. So he has three propositions where he basically does what we would do with algebra in a matter of, I mean, well, I would do them in a matter of seconds. Um, not everyone is enthusiastic about algebra as I am. But, you know, they're not. They're not complicated. They don't need quite this level of brain bleeding uh, reconsideration in order to in order to be understood with modern notation, um, but they didn't have modern notation. They didn't have the idea of oh well, I'll just multiply both sides of this equation by this figure, and that will clear that will clear that proportion out, and off we go. We're off to the races. Um, they had to wade through these things as if they were somewhat you know as if they were characteristically different. There's a parallel with what was going on in Italy in the 16th century. So really, you know, people living. Certainly, you know, well remembered in Galileo's time, far better than they are today, um, and also people who, uh, you know, were you know intellectual direct you know forebears to Galileo, people who were obviously uh, affecting his his uh, educational environment. So they were wading through things like um, what I'm most familiar with is the solution to the cubic equation, and there are figures named Tartaglia and Ferraro and and Cardano. Um, in particular, who are associated with the general solution to the cubic equation. So, in a, um, you know, if a quadratic equation has a square, a term, an x term, and a constant term in modern notation, a cubic equation has all of those and an x cubed term, um, which is a lot harder to solve in general, as you might imagine. You can, you know, if you're lucky enough, you can solve a factoring, because you can solve anything with factoring if you're lucky. 
But if you're not, then you need some, you know, really powerful methodology, and it took until the 16th century for that to get um, invented. So, you know, and then there's, um, so, and they're, they're also hamstrung by, they have a very, you know, they have the beginnings, because algebra is a, you know, a word that's Arabic in origin. And, uh, you know, so they had elements of that already. Um, but it was taking, it took a long time for our algebraic notation to come into you know, existence. And so Galileo largely eschews it. Um, and the, the Italian algebraists of the century before were using it, but they had no concept of, you know, like a negative number. So they couldn't simply move things back and forth across the equal sign. You know, you have to wade through if you're if you're considering the case of as they did, it was a it was a stepping stone, the quote depressed cubic, which has no square term. You know, it's fundamentally a different equation in some sense. If you have the square, if you have the cube term and the linear term on one side and the constant on the other, because you know they all have to be positive, um, as opposed to having you know where all the coefficients have to be positive, as opposed to having um, all the numbers you know, as opposed to having all the terms on one side, as opposed to having the cube term by itself on one side. All these had to be weighted through separate cases, um, and it was incredibly tedious. So this, you know, the overturns that were coming in the 17th and especially the 18th century, because, you know, to my knowledge, by the end of the 18th century with Leonard Euler, we have our modern notation, most, most of our modern, you know, the fundamental elements. And of course, you know, as mathematicians continue to in, in, invent new concepts, we need new, new notation to express it. But yeah, so it, it's nearly in place by that point. Um, and it's, but, but in Galileo's time, it's still very suspect. And Galileo doesn't use it at all. And it's also fascinating to look at what Galileo's trying to do in reasoning about motion and looking at how close in this geometric paradigm he's coming to the idea of limits and infinitesimal quantities and these sort of infinite sums of little, you know, he calls them, you know, he points out parallels. You know, I draw this line and then I, you know, this you know, represents time. And then along this line representing time, I draw all these perpendicular lines that are parallel to each other, so he calls them parallels. And they are representing the velocity, and it's going up in free fall. Um, and continues to go up at a constant rate, and that was a major insight for Galileo. Once something has fallen two seconds, its velocity has doubled, not you know, from after falling one second. As opposed to, up to that point, they would have said um, a medieval um, physicist, if he'd bothered himself with such a quantitative question at all, would have said, well, after the distance, it has, you know, after, after a meter, it has, you know, attained a certain speed, and after two meters, it must have attained a doubled speed. And they had evidence for that um, in the sense that impacts, if you, you know, set, a, set yourself up a nice little uh, sandy patch and drop things onto it, yeah, if you drop a ball from two meters it makes, in some sense, twice as large a hole as the one at one meter. And of course, that was going to have to <laughs> remain to be resolved, that what's going on there is kinetic energy, not velocity. Because um, they had no good way to measure velocity. So they could take a stop-motion camera and you know, take photographs of the dead blame thing as it fell. Um, so they really, I mean, yeah, it's just fascinating. Looking at physics, you know, that the, the Galileo is groping to do, hamstrung by the equipment, and hamstrung by the um, notation and intellectual equipment he has to bear on the problem. 
it's just fascinating. One, you know, one last note, as I mentioned, the, the Italian algebraists and their solution to the cubic equation. So, you know, so there's a sense that, you know, it's obvious that the, the number negative one doesn't have a square root, right? I mean, that's, that's obvious. Um, you can't multiply two numbers together from the real world and get negative one or any negative number. Uh, once you've allowed yourself the concept of negative number, um, and yet when you, um, you you look at the formula that was developed to solve the cubic equation in general, and then you look at cubic equations, which I mean quadratic equations can have no solution. There are quadratic equations that have no roots. Um, the parabola, you know, in a graph, you know, in, in analytic notation, um, the graph simply doesn't never crosses the x-axis, so it has no roots, it has no solutions. But a cubic equation always has to. The nature of it is, is it's going up on one side and it's going down on the other, off to infinity, and it does some, you know, it does a couple bends in the middle usually, but it always has to cross the x-axis. And and yet, when you uh, when you use the Cardano uh, formula on uh, on many cubic equations, you wind up with you know the square root of negative one inside there, and you and you realize you have to just carry on and pretend that it's a number you can work with and do a little mental gymnastics. It's like, well, if I allow i equals the square root of negative one, well, what happens if I cube that? Oh, well, that's negative i. All right, well, I need to find the cube root of negative i, so I guess that's i. Off we go. Um, so this was, you know, this, this new notation that was going to open up and this new, there was a new freedom of just, we're just going to follow these concepts as far as they're going to go. So next time I really want to, uh, that's, that's kind of a segue to the next time that I, you know, this little series, which might be two podcasts, maybe maybe longer. Um, yeah, that, that would be the point of departure probably for the next time. So, all right, well, I hope you were all, uh, hope you're all well. Um, I know that, uh, you know, in the world outside of uh, Wyoming, uh, things are, yeah, things are crazy. New York is flooding. Delta variant, all of that good stuff. Um, you know, it's smoky here. Uh, we keep putting off uh, our astronomy field trip for my field science class because there's just too much smoke in the air coming from, you know, hundreds of miles away. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's a strange and uncertain world we live in. It's kind of amazing that there are that many regularities that we can tease out as we can in physics. So, uh, yeah, with that little meditation, that, you know, the details are uncertain, and yet uh, the big picture is very certain. Uh, I'll leave you to it. God bless. Thanks for listening to this episode of That's So Second Millennium. TSSM's audio producer is Morgan Burkhardt. Our theme music, Igneous Grok, was composed and performed by Vin Marquardt. For my co-host Bill Schmidt, I'm Paul Geesting. Until next time.